welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Nothing, man. The clock's ticking. It's time to give the people what they want. All right. And you know what? Know what I think the people want? Besides what do you this think the podcast? people want, Stephen? The people want the scholar program. We have had people signing up. We have had people going nuts over it. Why? Because it makes you a better coach, right? Our goal is to solve your coaching problems, to give you the workouts, the guidance, the insight. Wherever you're struggling this cross-country season or marathon season, we've got you covered. We've got things that we're rolling out soon. We're not going to announce quite yet, but are specifically designed to solve your coaching needs. So, and we 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 know because we made all the pro- errors. So we <laughs> we have messed up so much, and basically we're just trying to help give you the tools so you can mess up less than we did. That's right. And if you want to <laughs> listen to some of the things we messed up, check out an episode a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, where we detailed a lot of those things we used to believe, which aren't there. So, Scholar Program, check it out, sign up, fun stuff, be a part of the tribe, you won't regret it. Now, let's dive into this week's topic, which, you know, you before we were talking, you summed it up pretty well. Mm. The world is getting hotter. <laughs> you can't escape it. I mean, this might be the number one podcast we ever do. <laughs> because you can't escape the reality of the, the hot heat and humidity that is now engulfing every corner of the globe at some point throughout the year. Don't worry, we're not going to dive into the the world of climate science, but what we are going to do is teach you how to successfully train and compete in heat and humidity. Yep, deal with it. So this this topic is near and dear to my heart. I think, you know, because you're a psychopath who lives in Houston, Texas, for yeah. some reason. Yes, I mean, you could live somewhere a little bit more, you know, uh, accommodating, like I do. But hey, teach their own. I'm I'm just I'm just prep, man. I'm ready for this. <laughs> yeah, I know you are. You're Steve's always been ahead of the curve. I'm I'm ready. You know, as the world gets warmer, you know what? I got it used to it. So, you know, but it's near and dear to my heart because, you know, I did. I grew up in Houston suburbs, you know, have lived here all but a handful of years in my life, only grad school and then a couple years out there near John. Um, and that's it. And besides that, I've been in Houston, which is the wonderful heat and humidity capital, I think, of the country. Um, and you just have to, you have to learn how to deal with it. Right. You have to learn how to understand what the heat is and and adapt to it. And, you know, as as we were planning for this, this podcast, I got to thinking and looking back at my training logs. And, you know, it's kind of fascinating what you're able to do when you have no other choice. And it's just the norm, because when I looked back in high school, yes, we ran in the morning, but we also ran in the afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon so the dead heat of the day dead yes. heat of the day because why it's after school it's after school practice right mm-hmm. that's when you practice and i'm looking at you know we would do like these 10 mile steady progression you know marathon pace type stuff at three o'clock in the afternoon wow and you know we would survive I don't know what that. He lives says. to tell the tale, folks. <laughs> I I live, but you know what that what that tells me is that heat and humidity can suck, okay? But you can navigate it if you come in with the right mindset, if you come in with the right preparation. And what we're going to try and go over is is some of those uh, some of those details for you you guys listening. Because I mean, again, the heat and humidity has very real very potent physiological as well as psychological impact on our I remember a couple years ago I came down to Houston in June and for Vern Gambetta's gain uh, clinic um, it, which was awesome by the way at Rice University stay with Steve and at the time I was running 
about 20 miles a day, six minute pace, no problem in the Northwest. Um, you know, so I, this was a higher mileage experimental period. And I was working on some things and I was kind of, I was fit and I get up in the morning, early in the morning, you know, have some coffee, go out the door at seven 30. Steve had by his old house, this great little park with uh, you know, crushed gravel loop, two mile loop right around. I couldn't make it five miles. I thought after like 20 minutes, my eyes were going to pop out of my head. My heart was being on my chest. Like I was dripping sweat, like literally, literally pools just coming down. I had to walk back to Steve's house. I was like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> and Steve's like, are you okay? I thought you were fit. I go, not, not heat fit. <laughs> so because coming from the Northwest where it's very, you know, cold and accommodating and we don't have a lot of these high temperatures or at this, the severe humidity. Um, I just wasn't ready. And I also experienced this too in college where in New York city, I'd stay there in the summers, um, between semesters and yeah, August, late July, in New York city, very humid. And sometimes the heat index can make the perceived temperature into like the one twenties. Right. But the great thing is we know if you systematically expose the body to a stress or an environment, it will adapt. And that's what we want to talk about is how to, one, create those adaptations if you live in that environment, and then two, also how to um, create those adaptations if you don't live in that environment and you know you're going to race and compete in that environment. Sure. So let's let's go through stuff uh, real quick. Let's let's just skim over the science of what this all entails. So heat and humidity. What is what is the big deal? Why does it it uh, affect us so much? So. One big thing is it's your core body temperature, right? It's essentially, think of it like your brain has a shutdown function, right? And it says, man, our core body temperature is getting too high. We're going to start making this really difficult and then start shutting you down if you get too dangerous. Because if the core body temperature gets too high, you know what? Things stop functioning. <laughs> and you're, you're, in yes. real, you're in real danger, Okay. So the body, it's one of those feedback mechanisms that your brain is like into, intimately in tune with. It is measuring, monitoring, and most importantly, predicting. So if it starts to see this rise and you're headed towards this danger zone, it's going to shut you down uh, before you get to this danger zone most of the time if it it, it, it works well. That's, that's the mechanism. So, okay, core body trencher gets higher. Fatigue starts setting in, all that stuff shuts us down. Well, yeah. humidity makes it even more difficult. Why? Oh, yeah. Because one of the re one of the ways your body deals with, you know, this core body temperature going up, like heat accumulating, is to sweat. But in order for the sweat to have an effect, what what naturally needs to occur is you sweat. And then you cool off based on, you know, the air around it, et cetera, et cetera, evaporate, sweat evaporating, cooling your temperature, your skin temperature, which then impacts core body temperature, et cetera. When you're in really fact, cats don't sweat. Cats do not sweat. Near your dogs. Yep. And that's why they pant. Mm hmm. Right. Dogs. That's why they, they pant. And if you've ever taken your dog for a, a run in the uh, in the heat, like I have. What happens, and well, I'll give you an example, quick example. Our wonderful dog, Willie, can probably, even though he's seven years old, he, he can go for five, six miles in the winter, right? Once it gets to summertime, you know, he tops out at about a mile and a half, two miles maybe, and sometimes, literally, he will, this is when you know it's hot. He'll go out the door, run 800 meters from our house, <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll just turn around and be like, nope, I'm done. Take me back in. <laughs> Love, it. And then, Love it. You know why? Because he's worried about the heat, you know, mm -hmm. just like we are. Um, but it's it's fascinating. But anyways, that's one of the reasons why the humidity kind of kills you because, you know, sweat doesn't evaporate. It just it just, you know, stays on there and you slowly die a miserable death. And the other thing is the blood, right? So then now you're in heat and humidity and you're spending, remember the 
skin's an organ. So your body's spending in putting blood towards the skin to create this cooling effect to engage the sweat glands and all that type of stuff. So then that blood and all the nutrients in those blood is being shunted away from your muscle fibers and even your other organs. And that's one of the key reasons why the brain's doing this cost-benefit analysis all the time and saying, well, I don't know if I have enough nutrients to sustain and recycle out all the um, waste products that are being produced if I'm running really fast while also trying to keep my surface temperature cool so we don't internally cook all these organs and I have to you know, pass out and expire. Exactly. That's a good point. And that's why you might hear the term or phrase that heat and humidity are the poor man's altitude because you have this shunting effect where you are literally sending less oxygen, you know, getting rid of less CO2 because your blood is diverted to more pressing needs of trying to, you know, uh, cool the, the body down by going to the, the skin and, and all that good stuff. And try yeah, it's a legit that. hypoxia, yep. uh, you know, uh, reality. And I remember back in, what was it? 2009. Yeah. Uh, when the world championships in track was in Osaka, Japan, it, they knew it was going to be super humid. And so, a lot of the Wisconsin, former Wisconsin runners that were in Jerry's group before it became Bowerman, so Chris Slinsky, Matt Tegenkamp, et cetera, they actually went back to Wisconsin and just trained in Wisconsin for about a good you know, month to six weeks before Osaka to acclimate to that humidity profile, the intense humidity, because Wisconsin summers have a lot of humidity going on. And so it's interesting to see like the ability of the body to adapt to be able to do this difficult work of running fast, provided you provide it with enough of a window for everything to recalibrate. Um, and I think that's probably the next spot we want to talk about because that's super interesting as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing is, again, the body adapts. <laughs> I mean, you, you put a stress on it and it adapts, you know, we look at the, the blood, for example, one of the ways it adapts is, is it expands the plasma volume, right? Uh, your blood volume in, can increase thanks to exposure to heat so that you can deal with this, uh, shunting effect, um, to a higher, to higher degree, to, um, an improved degree. So you're looking at, when you're looking at heat adaptation or heat acclimatization, it generally takes a couple weeks to get adapted, acclimated enough to where your body says, okay, this is how, how we're going to do things. And your body adapts in a number of ways. We talked about blood. We talked about it gets more efficient at shunting the blood where it goes. You have a better sink of, of uh, your heart rate and your um Cardio, cardiac output once your body figures out how to how to deal with the heat so your body and you get a little bit more efficient at at figuring out how to dissipate heat and cool yourself so your body has all these mechanisms where you acclimate to the heat and you figure it out and it takes a couple of weeks and the best thing you can do is do just like what jerry's group did which is you know go to somewhere hot go to somewhere humid and like experience that now the key here and this goes for even those who live in a hot humid place as well because you're going to have that transition period where it goes from it's relatively cool to oh my god like the summer is here i'm going to die the key is in that transition period it is very easy to overcook things because heat itself is as we're talking about, your body is adapting to it. So it is its own stressor. So you can't just go in and be like, you know what? You know, I've been doing two hard workouts of five miles in volume with them and a long run of 15 miles and eight, 90 miles a week. And that's what I've been doing in this cool environment. And I'm just going to do the same thing during this heat acclimatization phase. It doesn't work. You can only adapt to so much. Yeah. Expectations need to change. Right. And the thing about heat and humidity is depending on when you start to acclimate and your uh, rate of exposure to it, 
it's like any kind of uh, load. You have a recovery penalty that follows it. The more severe the exposure and the less prepared you are, the longer the recovery period afterwards, right? So you may think you can stay with your normal weekly schedule. Um, that's pretty high density of intensity, but he, your body's going to have other um, ideas because it just needs more time to repair. It needs more time to recalibrate to that homeostatic norm. So one key thing is, um, and actual items is one, reducing the amount of expectation of the time that you're looking to run. So you have to scale back. Okay, I, you know, if you're used to doing repeat tempo, you know, miles at five minute pace, that expectation might scale back. And you, as a coach, you need to just say, run it at what feels like five minute pace, but your neural output is going to be dampened. So it's not going to read that on the watch. It's okay. We're going to build a bridge to getting you to be able to run five minute pace in the heat humidity, which is a much different five minute pace in kind of like the more temperate and cool uh, climates, right? Same thing. And it's like the recalibration you have at altitude. You don't go run five minute pace at altitude when you get off the plane and think you'll just be skipping along like you were at sea level, right? So that's one. Number two is also like altitude. There's a, a longer recovery period after intense bouts of work. So because the body went under such severe environmental impact and was doing something difficult in a difficult environment, you then need to buffer and um, ballpark a little delayed recovery. Um, and then three is also on the immediacy of what you do afterwards to encourage and or dampen that response to that training, right? So you can, you know, uh, dump ice or uh, on your head or hold ice cubes in your hand. Or even one thing I do is, you know, is you can put ice cubes in between your butt cheeks um, when you're running intervals, um, you know, or have like a, an igloo um, container there with a towel and stuff like that. And if you are like in the Northwest, we've experienced some waves, some heat waves, you, you can help dampen your body's um, negative response, your distress response to that heat by having that uh, intense cooling that ice and ice water is available by putting it on key thermoregulators like your hands, the back of your neck, between your glutes, etc. Um, but if you're doing, if you want to acclimate towards getting ready for some type of hot and humid um, competitive environment that you're going to be faced, you kind of don't want to do that. And you actually, you know, you, you might want to make it a little bit, consider making it a little bit harder on yourself initially by wearing longer layers, by, you know, um, wearing gloves or things like that to really create this acclimation response. Do you do that during a workout? No, you do that during like your quote unquote easier maintenance runs, right? Because again, it's another way to build that bridge towards getting that, um, acclimatization you want but everything again when you initially deal with the heat and humidity the body interprets it as a very severe stress so our expectations then must be um uh, adjusted in kind yes uh, you know i think the biggest thing you have to do is look at that stress and adaptation um because it's it's pretty simple right Spending time in heat and humidity ad adapts you to it. If you live in somewhere where you can do that, great. If you can train somewhere where you can do that, great. If not, we'll talk a little bit of other strategies you can do in a second. But when you're training in heat and humidity, you have to dial down the intensity a little bit because it's going to be a stressor and you have to give yourself more space to respond because you do not recover as well. It's just... You do not. As someone who has lived and trained here forever, you do not recover. It is way easier to dig yourself in a hole. You need to treat it like you're just going up to altitude for the first time, a really high altitude for the first time in your life. And be a little, you know, cautious. Because the, you know, the reality is you probably underestimate how much of a change that occurs. And how severe it is. Yes. <laughs> you know, I we talked about, you know, I talked about doing these 10 mile runs in high school at three o'clock in the afternoon um, when we would do these. And these were hard on a on a hilly course. And we we'd we'd 
we had a five mile loop. You'd stop at five miles, get some water, dump it on your head and then keep going. Um, but anyways, <laughs> in the early part of the cross country season where it's still hot, August, you know, September, early September, you know, I would run these things in like 57, 58 minutes and it was hard. Once it got that first cool day, my coach would always put this workout in there because it was like, oh, cool day. So we get to October, it cools off. And I would run this same loop, same effort in like 53 minutes, right? <laughs> magic. And it's just like, bam, magic. And that happened with everybody, you know? And that's the difference. You know, I remember actually one time... um, in track season, we had Brian Barraza, I think it was his sophomore or junior year, he raced a 5k at Rice. And it just happened to be, you know, it was sometime in April. Um, so April can be hit or miss. Sometimes you get a cool evening. Sometimes you just get a miserable evening. Uh, but the problem is we'd have mostly cool evenings. And then we got a miserable e evening and Brian ran, you know, all out like a 1435k with a rabbit for almost all of the race, Tommy Schmidt's rabbit in it, actually. Mm. So, a, a, you know, a good rabbit took him yeah. through because we were just like, oh, we're going to get it done. You know, two <laughs> weeks later at Mount Sac, he runs 1350. Right. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. it because that's the impact of the heat and humidity. And you just have to be aware of it. You know, and the other thing that I'll say is whenever for our summer training, whenever I was coaching both high school and college kids, I would, this is an instruction I would give and they were just doing mileage. So nothing, nothing, you know, no intensity, but the first, while they're building mileage off of coming off their track season break, you know, they take a break after track season, they're getting back into it. I tell them you are going to feel like absolute garbage for about two to three weeks. It's all right. Just trudge through the trudge through the runs. If you need to run nine minute pace, run nine minute pace. Just trudge through, and you're gonna call me, and you're gonna text me, and you're gonna be like, "Coach, I feel overtrained. I'm done. I'm running so slow, and it feels so hard." And I'm gonna tell you that's all right. Just keep going, because what inevitably happens is, and this happens to everybody is after about two to three weeks, again, easy, slow mileage, your body finally catches up. And one day you kind of, it's almost like magic. One day you wake up and you don't feel great, but all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. Like this nine mile run at seven minute pace, like feels a heck of a lot easier. It's not perfect. It's still hot and humid and it still sucks, but it feels a heck of a lot easier. And that's your, just your body adapting. So, you just got to give it the time and space to do so, so that you're in, in, in a good space. And I think a lot of times what happens is athletes see heat, humidity, and they try and continue their training and all that stuff. And your body doesn't adapt the way it's supposed to, because you haven't given it the space. Again, the example I'll use, it's like going up to altitude to, you know, 8,000 feet altitude the first time and saying, you know what, last week at sea level, I did, you know, six by mile at 430 pace. So I'm going to try and do that, you know, this week at altitude. And you just dig yourself a hole. That's what happens. Give yourself some space. Yeah, I think a lot of training errors on athlete and coaches part is lack of respect or understanding about these latency periods of adaptation uh, when exposed to a novel stress, right? And it, we, we're getting better at the science and we know actually like from coming down from altitude or even when you start a new training program, new block, right? You Actually, the first three days, first four days even, you feel fine. You feel good. Your body is actually elevating its response. It's saying, okay, I'm going to dump more hormones and, um, you know, the endorphins are going to release and it, you're going to actually get a lot from your body. So that's why if you're going up to altitude to compete coming from sea level and you're on the low budget, or you're going like across the world on a low budget, right. And you don't have the time to acclimate to that new environment for the time thresholds you need. You actually just want to come in like the night before, wake up and like, go do the thing and get out, right? Because that's your best method because your body will elevate its response in that short period to that environmental stress. 
However, when we start to get in this latency period, three days to like 14 days, you feel like crap. You feel really bad. <laughs> Not good at all. Um, because again, even though you might be, say, coming down from altitude um, and you think, oh, I should be, I have all this physiological, you know, hypoxia benefit, got more natural EPO, you know, red blood cell count, I should be awesome. You just feel kind of off because again, it's a brand new environment, your body's recalibrating. So you don't get to experience the immediacy of the benefits of that work. And this is what hurts people's heads in training and expectations related to training, especially novice, um, especially people who want quick results. It's you know, why all the periodization models are six weeks, right? You feel fine. You feel actually, you feel excited the first couple days of starting a new training um, uh, period. But then you feel like absolute garbage for the next two, two and a half weeks before you like dig out of this hole. And you're like, you start to go, oh, am I, is this the right pathway? Or are we doing the right balance of stress? And, recovery? and it's like, no, this is just, that's the symptoms of your body adapting to the new stressor. Um, and, but once you get out of that latency period, then we, you start to see that, um, per, you know, exponential increase in ability and also affinity for what you're doing by feeling a lot better and feeling more excited about it. And I think as a coach, that's the hardest thing is to coach people through that latency period of a response to the, the stressor, because a lot of people have very, um, unrealistic short-term quick expectations. And as you should, like the body's built on feedback loops, right? And we're constantly deciding how good we feel and trying to create predictions for tomorrow, the next hour, the next minute, what to do based on the feedback we're getting immediately from the body. So good training will anticipate this response. And as Steve said, like, you'll, you'll tell them, look, I don't care. Just do some work and get through it. It reminds me of like when I coach runners who would uh, go up to altitude from sea level. And I go, look, you just can feel awful for like three weeks. Just run, just run as much as you can stomach. I don't care. The only like quality you're going to do is in the gym. Um, because we're not up there to train and they were going up fit. They're already like, you know, nationally class fit, ready to rock because you have to go into those environments fit to get a bigger boost. Right. But you feel like garbage and that's fine. Um, the main thing, though, is then being able to coach and, and prepare the athlete through what, what they're going to go through, what they are going through, and the reward they'll get when they come out of it. And it can be stressful as a coach because you're not 100% sure when they're going to start feeling better. But as long as they stay consistent with it, they will eventually come out of it in about three weeks. And then things will start to They'll start to have control and command over their ability, their physical abilities again, versus when they first start, you know, that's a part of the other worries, this loss of control and command of saying, I need to tell my body to run this pace for this rep or this distance, and it's not doing it. Yep. OMG. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's this, this push and pull. Uh, I'm glad you uh, outlined some of that stuff. Um, so... You know, we've talked a lot about, okay, this is how you adapt. You adapt, you know, when you're running in hot environments. What about if you're going somewhere that you know is going to be hot and humid, but you don't train somewhere in there? Like, how do you, how, if you don't, not a professional athlete, you can't go somewhere for three weeks to adapt and acclimate and get ready. Well, you know, John talked about some of the strategies you could do. Like, where Oh, I, this is what I did at Portland State all the time, because yeah. guess where regional was every year? Austin, Texas, yep. Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I'm sitting here bringing 10K, 5K runners down, and I'm just like, woof. <laughs> this is not going to go well if we don't get ready. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I'll let you, John, talk about some of the things that, that you did um, in that. I think, you know, some of the things I've used in the past with other runners I've coached from afar and that the research really shows uh, well, two things that I've I've used with other people is a if you can um, find a treadmill or have a treadmill, especially in if it's in a garage or something like that, get a space heater. Close the garage, you know. Get a space heater, put it right next to it. You know, simulate things to wear some extra clothes. Simulate things to a degree in a confined space. You can do this 
this stuff. You know, you don't need necessarily a fancy, you know, uh, environmental chamber. The other thing that works, you know, really well, if you look at the research, surprisingly, is regardless of where you're training and your environment, if you can then immediately after training, go sit in a sauna for about 20 to 30 minutes, your body adapts, right? Your body, your body says, oh, okay, like sauna, hot, humid, we just worked out. We're going to adapt to a degree. Um, we used to uh, use this, Sarah Hall used this and still uses this, I believe, uh, decently when she was getting ready for a marathon in hot, or a race in hotter and humid in, environments. Go sit in the sauna. Uh, Canadian Athletics uses this protocol. And then interesting, the insight you only get on the On Coaching podcast, there was a study that found that for whatever reason, probably related to adaptation, that if you go sit in the sauna and then you drink or consume po- protein right after, it actually boosts your adaptation. So, you know, there's things like this you can do, How uh, you know, to give some more details, how much, you know, as I said, 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes is about, you don't want to go too much, too much longer spread it out over a couple week period, just like you, it's almost like you're, you know, you're, you're training, you need about two to three weeks to adapt, you know, you don't do it after every run or every workout, but if you can do it after, you know, uh, three to four workouts or runs a week, then you're going to be in a good place. So just mm-hmm. a couple tips there. Yeah. I mean, those, those are all things we, we did. And, you know, I continue to do with athletes in the Northwest who are going to go compete in endurance events in the heat and humidity. The other thing is actually sitting in the sauna beforehand for about eight minutes before you go for a run, um, fully clothed. So the key is, again, knowing where the thermal regulators are. So, you know, a lot of big thermal regulators are going to be in the hands, the feet, back of the neck, the butt, the head, right? So, we want to then wear very thick socks. So I'd have them wear kind of like wool or very just like thick socks. They wear gloves when they would run. Um, They would wear kind of that thermal fleece base layer uh, beanie and then, you know, wear full length tights and then over it wear um, the Gore-Tex non-breathable rain jacket. Right. And this is beautiful spring day in Portland. There's no rain in sight. (laughs) So, and you see a lot of the Japanese runners actually do this and even Kenyan runners. I remember, you know, watching, um, you know, Japanese runners warm up for Stanford and they're, they're like prepared for a monsoon. Right. But in Japanese running, they train a lot. And again, what this does is by wearing all these clothes, is it dampens the body's response to interpret um, things as hot. So it, once it acclimates, it's actually is like, it's fine. It's not sending as much blood, right, to your skin to, um, to cool that surface area. It's retaining that to go to the organs or the muscle tissue that's actually doing the action. And so you feel like really cold, right, which is actually a good sign. Because if you feel really cold, your body's going to say, well, we don't need to put blood or even... Um, uh, uh, sweat on the skin and, you know, compromise where all that's going towards. So we can concentrate it on the muscle tissue and also, uh, organs that are involved in running really fast for a long period of time. Uh, the other thing would be, yeah. And that would be every run would be kind of in this quote unquote winter rain gear. And after, um, the more easier runs that would be that following the day after the, a, a workout or a session, then they would also do the sauna protocol sitting there for 20 minutes after the run. So eight, about eight minutes, 10 minutes before the run, go run, then go back and sit in there for 20 minutes afterwards. Um, the other thing that we would often uh, do as well as um, go without um, like water or any kind of um, refreshment during a workout. And the workout would still be in longer clothing. It just wouldn't be in um, kind of the the rain suit stuff because it was harder to run faster with all that on you. But you still would, they still would be wearing full length tights, uh, the thermal top, uh, some type of hat, some type of gloves, right? But also too, 
what we're trying to do is there's a really high, when you're in that environment, there's a really high desire for thirst, right? And the lack of that thirst uh, hunger being met can start to create, you know, uh, alarm bells in the body, right? So by conditioning the body not to accept water and not to need that necessarily and basically just deal with it, um, you know, gave also athletes confidence. So like, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I have to get water right away at the first water stop. Or, you know, if it's the track 10K regionals, oh, I have to every lap go out and get water and splash on it. Like it also, it had a physiological uh, adaptation effect, but also a mental callousing effect. Now, if you're in a marathon, you know, obviously you need to get the fluids earlier. So I'm talking more about half marathon below. But in terms of we want to think about we're callousing not only the physiology, but also the psychology so that people feel more than adequately ready to deal with the difficult environmental demands. And should something go away, like not get some water here or there, it doesn't then create this cascading effect of freak out mode because now they're um, creating this uh, conscious prediction of, oh, I, I missed that water stop or I missed some water. And all of a sudden, like that's going to just you know, accelerate the, these rates of, um, uh, of negative response to the heat and humidity and sweat and preparation. And then, you know, they'll start to freak themselves out. So that was another thing we also did that actually had good import and it worked, which was great because like we would always have, um, at Portland state, these distance runners come in really low on the, um, totem pole of the regional qualifying list. Like, you know, in the 40s, in the you know high 30s of time rank, but they would always bump up and finish like 50% improvement, like in the low you know uh, low 20s, high teens. And you know I wasn't working with the most talented people, and these were just walk-on kids, normal, you know, at people who also have jobs and part-time jobs as well, going to school and doing all this stuff. But we just went into that regional more prepared physiologically from a heat response than say our cohorts at other um, non heat and humidity type schools and more, um, you know, just moderate uh, temperate schools and always out and outperform them with regularity because of this kind of training we did for about a month before regionals. Yeah. Those are some good insights, John. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting The the drinking stuff is, is fascinating because, um, you know, it's all manip like you can all manipulate this and I wouldn't I'm not recommending this for anybody, but but you know, there were many a long runs in high school where we did them without drinking any water during them in the heat and humidity of the summer of Houston. Now uh, every single long run I did in college in August for um in New York City, eighteen yeah. miles, not a sip. <laughs> Because, like, you know, the, the, there there was no one, there was, you know, we'd do these out and back loop runs, so there was nowhere to get water. And occasionally you'd be like, oh, it's a super hot day. I need some water. And you'd go find some guy's, you know, hose in their, their neighborhood yard. Um, but that's, that's kind of how it went. So it's interesting. Yeah, not always suggesting that, but... You know, I, I think of that often when I see people wear, you know, fuel belts and stuff for easy runs and stuff like that. Um, I think a large part of that, though, is like we are all very keen and aware of it to be extremely like very hydrated going into it, which is um, the important part. All right. So we've talked about heat adaptation, uh, acclimatization, getting ready. Now let's dive into a little bit of, okay, you've done all this stuff. Now you're getting ready to race. Um, what are some strategies you can do when racing in a hot environment? And maybe I'll give you the, the marathon kind of look at it since I've prepped people for marathons and, you know, had uh, Roberta Grona get sixth in the crazy hot Doha world championships, which was insane. Um, yeah, I was going to say that's, I'd love to hear that. And then, yeah, I can do the track stuff. Cause I mean, yep. you know, getting middle distance runners ready to compete in Des Moines, Iowa, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming from Portland, Oregon. Oh yeah. Um, uh -huh. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not complicated. 
you know, it's it's not. There's a lot of science around stuff, but here's here's what the science shows and here's what you know actually works in in real life is a it's it's important to go in as we just talked about hydrated prepared etc if you're taking care of that great pre the other thing is going into the marathon what do you do you cut the warm-up down to almost nothing right and some people don't even jog for a warm-up some need it and jog 400 meters or 800 meters, but you're literally cutting it down to where it's nothing because you don't want to raise the body temperature because that's already going to happen by just literally standing there. Um, so cutting it, cutting the warm up down completely. The other thing is, you know, ice vests, warming up in that stuff, wearing those, obviously like that helps as well, keeps the core body temperature low some people like using um actual dunks in a ice kind of tub i've seen uh for instance trent stellingworth who does his work with uh canada athletics canada like they'll have like a kiddie pool essentially of really cold water right ice tub type thing and then just you know hold their feet out of it so their shoes they don't even have to take their shoes off you know fall back into the the pool core their temperature down and then get out of it and and good to go. And the whole idea is keeping your core temp down. Other things that research shows works pretty well is drinking like ice slushy. So just like the ice chips, essentially slushy stuff. Again, you drink it, goes down in your stomach, helps cool cold bo- core body temp, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all things that you can do going into it. The simple goal is to keep your core body temperature low so that you've got more room to, we'll say, grow in, t- in terms of temperature as you get into the race. Yeah, it's like it's like anything in the marathon. You're just yeah. delaying the inevitable, yeah. essentially. And the longer you can delay it, whether That's- it's fueling substrates or core temperature rising, the better. Exactly. That's all it is. And then we get into the race. So what is the race? Essentially, you're playing a you're doing two things. You're playing you're playing a game, right? Of how do I run at my maximum ability while delaying the or keeping down the core temperature from rising. Okay, because you're producing heat when you're running, the faster you run, the more heat you produce. Um so you're playing this game. So with Roberta, what we really tried to do and she lives in uh in the New York area, so she was prepped acclimatized by training in that area for it did some other stuff as well but what we really tried to do is dial in okay what is your fitness and then what is your your adjusted fitness meaning for the conditions on the race day what does this probably look like and i went through a bunch of like you know research and validated you know calculators on how much heat and humidity and then i went through all my training logs from houston texas long tempos progressions and i said how much does like this heat and humidity impact the pace and we came in with the range and then we said okay you're going to start cautious and you're going to start on the slower end of this range because we're predicting that i don't remember what it was but we're predicting that you know, uh, your fitness is this and the heat and humidity of the race will slow you down by about, you know, 25 seconds a mile, whatever it was. And that's incredibly important because anything, any misjudgment of that means earlier heat accumulation, which eventually means you're fighting a losing battle about keeping that core temperature low. So being smart, being cautious, um, adjusting as as you need to and and dialing that in, and then the other strategies during that during it is pretty simple: <laughs> is get your carbohydrate you know drink in right your carb electrolyte drink in as you w- normally would because the limiting factor there is how much uh, your stomach can handle. And because blood flow is diverted away from your stomach, you don't actually want to increase your carb electrolytes because you're probably not going to be able to handle as much, right? And then in addition to that is constantly having, like almost constantly having water 
to either sip, dump on you, dump on your key cooling points of your body, your neck, your, you know, your palms, back of your head, all of those things, dump it on your hat. If you can get ice, you know, as we saw with the recent uh, marathon, same thing, rub ice on the key cooling points. If you do that stuff, then it can help keep that core temperature down just enough so that hopefully you're, uh, you're, you know, holding catastrophe at bay. Yeah, it's, it's about minimizing the threat response, right, as best you can. And that's why if you have a lot of the, the water to sip on or put on the body to then take the burden off the body producing sweat, and or ice, you're, you're constantly affirming, uh, you know, consciously and unconsciously, hey, I have all these cooling tools at my mech, uh, disposal at any time. I'm going to be okay. I can focus a little bit more on the hard thing versus your mind drifts and starts to go into self-preservation mode in a marathon and saying, oh, am I going to pass out? You know, and then every step becomes like a compromise or, you know, a, a question mark and then you, you stop being as aggressive or assertive as you could be because you're more concerned about the more important thing just fundamental like pure survival right so <laughs> yeah i think um you know as far as track goes like say coaching middle distance runners and things like that when you actually get there um like to a des moines austin texas what have you the key is, like Steve said, is understanding what a warm-up's for. So a warm-up is, f- the running portion of the warm-up is our most uh, direct tool to raise the core temperature. Well, if I don't want to raise the core temperature or the core temperature is already raised, then I can either minimize or cut the running portion. And this messes with people's minds, right? Because they're very routinized. But if you just understand the science, you go, don't worry about it. Then the other parts of the warm-up is about neural or potentiating activation, right? And that's where drills, sequences, or, you know, uh, encouraging like dynamic uh, mobility, range of motion activities that, you know, help those key joints open up if they're a little restricted, that's part of your normal routine. You can do those because they're ideally are in a not meant and aim to raise the, the core temperature. They're actually meant to turn on different body systems, right? So that would be the protocol that I have for like, you know, middle distance runners and distance runners that attract meat in heat and humidity, especially if you're forced like in Austin, Texas to warm up outside. In Des Moines, Iowa, they let you warm up in the gym where it's, you know, cool and stuff like that. But if you're forced to warm up outside, cut the running, focus just on the key drills, keep the core temperature um, from going up. The other thing is lots of ice. So the poor man's solution to the, you know, the, the famous ice gloves, uh, you know, um, robotic chambers that you see uh, professionals wear. Well, the poor man solution is actually very inexpensive, costs less than ten dollars, and is just as effective. Here's what it is: you go to the uh, either gas station or um, you know uh, Napa Auto Parts or whatever store, and you buy those really cheap gardener gloves um, for a dollar, right? That have that are like kind of like just uh, woven together, cotton woven together, stitched together, a little bit of porous, but still can retain things. You get a, um, you know, an igloo, um, con- uh, container, you dump a bunch of ice in there, a little bit of water, you put the gloves in there. And then what you can constantly do is reload the gloves with ice. And I've had like Julia Webb and other people sitting on the starting line in Des Moines, Iowa with these, you know, basically gardener gloves on but filled with ice and they and just start the race off with those in your hands for like the first lap or so, because again, it's heat and humidity. No one's going to go off the starting line like a crazy person in that environment. But those gloves, the great thing is, is it retains those ice cubes there. And then you can also take some of those ice cubes as you're warming up out there on the track. It's really hot um, and put those ice cubes in your mouth. That's one thing I like to do is have a hat on, put ice cubes on the hat and let this just sit and melt, have ice cubes, put it in the mouth. And again, people um, might kind of like shun this or take a step back, but you want to put ice cubes between your butt cheeks. It's really important because again, that's key, a really key thermal regulator area. Um, and by keeping that cool, you'll help keep 
like kind of those vital internal organs um, signals that, that it's okay to keep cool there. And don't worry, like you're already sweating up a storm anyways and hot, like it's totally worth it because you feel a lot better and that's the goal. And then you can also take those ice cubes that are in those gloves, right? When you're out there um, on the starting line warming up and stuff and you can tap the back of your um, neck, uh, you can, you know, if you want, put them on your some ice cubes on your armpits. It's just essentially like, to me, ice cube management. And so finding different tools that are really inexpensive and widely available, like those gloves or just a simple painter's hat. It doesn't have to be crazy. It's something you're going to dispose of. costs a couple bucks, but it goes a long way to make you feel really good um, in that environment. Because again, that's the key thing you're fighting, even on the micro level, is just retaining that blood from cooling your surface uh, from trying to go to your skin to cool your surface temperature. And that's why Trent Slingworth does the dunk or this or that. Um, because again, we're just trying to delay and that's what it becomes as a chess game of not necessarily who is the most fit, who ran the fastest time, who had the best time trial at Stanford. It's who delayed the freak out bells and core temperature rising to um, dangerous levels longest who can then express their fitness longest. That's the game. And, you know, we saw a great example of this and where women actually have an advantage in the, the Olympic marathon. They do. I know <laughs> they've got sports bras where yes. they can just throw some ice ice in there. And I thought it was ingenious, you know, and, um, it was, you know, it's ingenious and a, a great way to use what you got to keep yourself cool because that's what it is. It is, it is literally a, a battle of how do you keep yourself cool, um, in such an environment and ice, cold water, et cetera, et cetera, are your friends. And this will vary based on you. If it's a dry heat or a hot and humid heat because it'll change the dynamics as well, but all valid strategies. I think those are great. I think the, the cheap and simple gloves is a wonderful oh, yeah. example. Yeah, I mean, other things have been, you know, get like a gator as well. You can put the gator on the neck with some ice cubes in it. I mean, just just very, very simple, cost-effective things. The other last thing I want to touch on, though, is the psychology of competing in that type of environment. You, the, the key thing is you have to be a little crazy to um, be successful in that environment because you all these alarm bells are going off, right? So the athlete or person who can kind of teeter over the, the line of that alarm bell and get a little bit more out of them and um, uh, ignore, so to speak, those alarm bells will probably be in a higher uh, finishing position because most people, rightfully so, will succumb. And now you don't want to be like dual in the sun type thing or like they, you know, everyone, those out everyone passed out and it just ruined their lives and careers forever. But you need to err a little bit on the side of reckless in the key um, competitive moments in the race from as far out as you can stomach, right? Because it, it's a, such a vital, uh, a potent game of attrition that even a little gap with like 300 meters to go or a, a K to go, I've seen that little gap all of a sudden become a chasm because what happens is in that environment, when you're competing at a high level, but also you have extreme um, uh, environmental concerns, the body will essentially come to a cliff and just put on the e-brake out of nowhere. It, you know, it looked like someone got hit by a bus, right? That's what they say. And, you know, that's the bear, as we've talked about, jumping on your back in a previous podcast. And so when that, everyone's going to meet that bear in that environment, it's just a matter of who meets it least or who meets it last. Um, and who has the, the, the shortest amount of distance on the track to slow down. And that's, your has to be your mindset is I need to get as far as freaking possible, um, before this big slowdown happens. And so, you know, it's that old Paul Turgot, like you just have to ask yourself like with hundred meters in hundred meter intervals, or even a lap at a time can I give a little more? And if the answer is yes, and the answer should always be a little bit of yes, then keep going. Because most people will meet that bear and just go, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. I don't like this. And think all these negative thoughts, this sucks. Why am I here? This is stupid. Blah, 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 blah. And they'll beat themselves. 
And so that's why you have to, as an athlete and a coach, be ready for that and to be really, really comfortable with being really, 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 really uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is, and I think this is where that acclimatization comes into play as well, is like if you can adapt yourself in the workouts and understand what it's going to feel like to a degree, then you're going to be able to handle the suck a little bit because it sucks. Like, you know, unlike when you're at, let's say, Stanford, perfect conditions, like, you know, part of the race feels pretty good where you're in flow and you're rolling along at a lot of times when you're and then also too though you also expect to do well there so you're also in a heightened state of arousal as well right and and you have positive (laughs) feedback coming in because you hear the splits and you're like oh shit i'm on on pace to pr um you just got to understand that and i think that's where framing really helps because it's really easier in hot humid environments and you see this in the marathon a lot to go out and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm running like six minute pace. This is a jog to me. This is this is supposed to feel so easy. And then inevitably it feels much harder than it should. And you're you're sitting there going through, I'm going through the half marathon like four minutes slower than I did in my PR pace. What the heck? This should feel easier. And it's if you have those kinds of thoughts or expectations, it's easy to freak out, catastrophize, blow up, and your mind goes, well, if we're running so slow, like, what's the point? I'm not going to risk my life for this, so we'll just shut down. So framing it, having the right expectations, like understanding that your pace might be way slower, and that's totally fine. All of those are appropriate and good strategies um, to, uh, to, you know, to go for. And typically, it's the shift from the feedback of time and the status of time to competition, you know, and this is one of the unfortunate things that happens in this day and age is we have, um, you know, there's a big impulse to mislabel time as the key defining um, status symbol of a race. It's something that we pay attention to, something that matters, yes. But at the end of the day, it is also about competing, whether it's in your age group, you know, and a lot of people, oh, well, I just want to compete with myself via time. Well, that's all good and well, but that's not what racing really is. You know, that's called a time trial. A racing is actually competing against other competitors in the race. And this is where the shift to placing matters the most and why you also want to calibrate athletes to get encouragement from placing. And then to remind them that every single competitor in that environment is fighting their own internal battle, just like you. And some people's dialogue might be a lot worse. Some people's dialogue might be a, a little bit better. But that internal dialogue everyone has will all, uh, everyone will come to a tipping point where eventually they won't be able to sustain or keep that positive mojo going and the physiological um, delay of the alarm bells and freak out mode going off. So again, the goal is just to stay the course. And you've seen this time and time again. And different um hot and humid uh, endurance uh, events where someone was in 10th halfway through or three quarters of the way through and then they somehow worked their way up to third or fourth or whatever right and it's it's not so much necessarily they worked their way up they just persevered and stuck with it and the people who had a little bit of a head start on them you know kind of unwound and the alarm bells call and they threw in the towel because their dialogue was not a dialogue of positivity and gaining and sustaining and persevering and grit. It was a dialogue of, oh, woe is me, that kind of pity party dialogue where, oh, I'm not, if I'm not in top three, what's the point? If I'm not here, what's the point? If I'm not, you know, and that's a a really key, that's its own podcast, honestly, (laughs) because that happens even in not extreme uh, environmental races. Um, But it's something that we as coaches need to be cognizant of and work constantly with athletes on is that reappraisal and reframing in adverse circumstances to get the most out of themselves and do their best because you just don't know how the chips are going to fall um, at the end of the, the race. And that's where you have to actually get people to focus and be less narcissistic about what they're experiencing and actually step out and be a little bit more aware of their relation to what other people might be experiencing as well. Yeah. 
I'm glad I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that's that shifting of that framework, that mindset is incredibly important. All right. So I think we've covered we've I mean we've covered a lot of details here for heat and humidity. Let's uh real quick let's finish with the uh recovering or you know what you need to do immediately after and the duration that you need to recover after those really intense races in those types of environments cuz recovering you know Kanoa's famous for this right recovering from a hot and humid championship marathon for a world class marathoner it has a lot different recovery timeline than after a cool, flat, fast time trial type marathon or race, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's a good point. And I I think, you know, what we're looking at is essentially it's really freaking hard on your body. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, there's the science, not, folks. <laughs> you know, that that's what it is. That's the science right there. It's really freaking hard. And part of it is it's really freaking hard because it's not just a fatigue, a local fatigue issue. It's not, oh, you know, I'm running low on glycogen, you know. So what do you have to do after a normal marathon? Oh, I'm running out low on glycogen. I've got some muscle tears. Like, what do I have to do? Replenish those stores, get some protein, some rest, recovery, some movement around, and everything will come around. You have that in hot races, hot marathons, but then you also have this thermal stress that your body Oof. just went under where your yeah. body is like, hold up, hold up here. Our core temperature like went through the roof, which means like all of these other internal processes, like we shut them down a little bit or they didn't function um, appropriately or properly because we had this like extreme, you know, warning damage sign here, you know, our internal, um, you know, fluid slash electrolyte system is a little bit off balance here because it went a little haywire trying to prepare or handle these things. So there's a lot more systems, internal systems. You have to get back to homeostasis than just after a normal marathon or even a normal race um, afterwards. So what does that mean? It's pretty simple. More time. Yes. Right? More time. Lots. <laughs> a greater focus on getting back to normal in terms of diet, fluids, like recovery, all of those things. Um, yeah. Less stress, more digest. Yes, exactly. Because your body went through a very intense kind of freak out. Almost the way I like to see it is like, your body was predicting that it was on the edge of, you know, maybe catastrophe and potential death in some cases, right? Where the core temperature is only a, a degree or two away from, you know, imminent shutdown. Well, it takes time to get back from that. <laughs> so give it, give it, the, give it the time. And immediately after, like, cool yourself off, get the water in, like yeah. use ice to cool those, those ice bath. Let's off. go. Yep. Yes. Like all of those things, like get the temp down, like get it where you can, you know, where you can get back in a place. Don't go out for a, you know, a 20 minute cool down, you know, just get, <laughs> no. get stuff down first get, and, and then you can worry about the rest. Yeah. It's just the laws of thermodynamics here. You know, it's, you're trying to restore order after chaos. And that's what this type of activity is, is highly chaotic on your internal and psychological process because you know it's one integrated whole. And so yeah, Canova would talk about how these world-class marathoners would compete in, you know, these hot and humid world championship environments. And then, you know, four months later, still not good to go. Four months, right? And this is why you don't see a whole lot of our faster world-class marathoners compete in world championship marathons because they're usually in very extreme environments nowadays, unfortunately, like Doha, right? They'll come out for the Olympics and do the Olympics because the incentive is real high for that. But that's it. You had, I mean, you don't see Kipchoge running. You didn't see Kipchoge running the Doha marathon, right? In 2019, didn't happen because the recovery penalty is so severe and the amount of stuff that can go haywire and the delayed effects is a lot higher too. And I think that's the thing as a coach, you have to have compassion and understanding 
and also temper maybe the athlete's enthusiasm because they might have had a really difficult um, and disappointing run and say, oh, I want to get back at it. It's like, no, you need more time. And so what I tend to do is the normal time I'd take after that type of race for uh, rest, repair, and recovery, I tend to at least double it, if not triple it, um, as, a, as a safe uh, protocol mechanism, and then check in with them as we go about it, but also just get a really firm sense about where they're at, because the worst thing you can do is start back too soon before all those homeostatic processes have renormalized and gotten back to uh, the, the normal degree of robustness and predictability that body, that entity wants, because you're just going to go right off a cliff to dead endville immediately. And then what looks like quote unquote, wasting a month of not training can cap can happen and be like three months, half, half a year, a full year, and potentially even a career just because again, your the body hasn't uh, had the time or space to back off from perceived threats and stress. Exactly. Don't be an idiot. Take time. <laughs> That's our, our scientific message for you, but it is, there you go. It is important. All right. Well, hopefully we've given you some good info on how to handle the heat and humidity, uh, put it away, save it for when you need it because every, all, we all experience it or have to race in or train it at some point. Um, if you're interested in furthering your coaching knowledge, don't forget, check out the scholar program, all sorts of deep dives on everything from heat and humidity to warmups, to training, to, you know, history, all of these things that you're going to get, which will then help inform and change your coaching for the better. So become a better coach, check out the scholar program. And we thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of this on coaching community. We love the feedback we get. So thanks a lot. Keep listening. Appreciate y'all. Until next time.